And um, just a few final comments. Uh, the, the last major topic I want to talk about, if you've been keeping the Roman numeral uh, uh, topics, it's uh, Roman numeral four. This is called the normative versus descriptive debate. The normative versus descriptive debate. And um, some, and again, Longenecker would, is one who popularized this. Uh, this is about the issue of apostolic inspiration and epistemology as it relates to whether or not we should follow the example of uh, the, the apostles' exegetical method. Um, he, uh, he contended, of course, that uh, they were inspired in their doctrine, but not their exegetical method. Um, and but because they were inspired, we certainly shouldn't copy their method. We're not inspired. Okay. Um, but I, I think that's a confusion of method with epistemology. Yeah, they were inspired uniquely. We're not. I agree with that. But um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow their method. Uh, it just means they had more certainty and their exegetical method than we have in ours when they knew they were under inspiration. Um, and I think it's a very difficult thing, just logically, if you will, to separate method of interpretation from conclusions of interpretation. I, personally, I think that's impossible to do, but he does. He tries to make that, that, that nice and tiny separation. I just don't think he can do it. They're inextricably linked and um, so uh, again with regard to the typological method uh, I, I've given reasons why I don't think it's non-contextual I'm going to give more I'm going to, as I said a full lecture on, uh, on typology um, but some are very leery of saying hey we ought to see if there are types in the Old Testament beyond that which the apostles and Jesus mentioned some are very leery to do that because of the misuse of typology down through the history of the church. And I alluded very briefly to that earlier, but just because uh, the typological approach has been misused, doesn't mean it's a wrong approach. Uh, that would be like saying, just forget ever preaching on the book of Revelation because there've been so many misinterpretations of the book of Revelation. I'm not gonna touch that one. Um, I don't think that's the right approach. Um, so now, now some uh, call um, typology, they'll call it systematic theology, they'll call it application, they'll call it and, and doing analogies or drawing out of text implications. Uh, they'll say this is part of theological interpretation of scripture. Um, uh, there've been a lot of names given to, to uh, the typological method. But, but I think it can be viewed broadly as a method of exegesis. It's canonical contextual exegesis. Uh, so to, to interpret that an event foreshadows another event is interpretation. And it's, it's my own view I found increasingly that, remember I said there's nothing new really in the New Testament, even when the word mystery is used, it says the mystery is revealed. It's not brand new. It's a clarification and expansion 
of, of something that, that was at least hinted at in some way in the Old Testament. And um, so I think that uh, what you'll find with some of the types that are mentioned by Jesus and the apostles, you can see in the context that, that there's a, an exegetical hint that this points forward. It's very exciting to see that. And I'll show you some of those uh, in the typology lecture. They're actually, you can actually see some, some, some hints uh, in the text itself that the event being narrated, that the, that the author sees this as pointing forward to something uh, greater in the eschatological future. Now, there's some where you can't find those hints, but there's some where you can. And uh, so that, that's why I think this is, uh, it really ought to be broadly called canonical contextual exegesis, because I think it's part of interpretation to determine whether an event foreshadows or it doesn't foreshadow. And I'm going to give criteria, I'm going to give about five or six criteria on how to control typology. Now, it, it's not going to make everything clear cut like a mathematical formula, but I think it'll help a little bit. Um, so, uh, now, if you're going to try to theologically relate uh, uh, the, the Testaments, old and the new, is crucial. If you're going to try to theologically relate the Testaments or, or do biblical theology. And uh, for those who say that the New Testament writers consistently misinterpret the old, including Jesus, remember, uh, what that means is that uh, there's a big gap between the, New the way the New Testament writers did biblical theology and the way we do biblical theology. We, we can't do it in the same way. That's a big gap, which I, I doubt that there is. Uh, part of doing biblical theology is typological exegesis, which, I, as I say, I think is indeed legitimate. Um, so, um, so everything I've said today really is about the contextual use of the old and the new versus the non-contextual use. It's a typical debate. It, it will continue, uh, I am sure, into the future. Um, now, what we're going to do is turn to, we'll just barely start this, but it's the beginning of tomorrow's lecture, and it is the, um, uh, the ways that the New Testament uses the Old Testament. The ways that the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to tomorrow uh, give you a, uh, a handout uh, that, that will give you the 12 different ways, and, I, and tomorrow will be filled with illustrations of each way. But um, you'll notice here, yeah, this is a handout that I will give you tomorrow, and it is uh, primary ways the New Testament uses the old. So I'm going to start on this. You don't have to worry about writing it down. I'm going to give this to you. We're going to photocopy it. Um, but uh, since it's just such a short time today, uh, I'll wait till tomorrow to photocopy it. So as you can see, the uh, first way that the Old Testament uses, uh, the New Testament uses the old is uh, to indicate direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, that's basically uh, how we understood the, the relation of old and new, probably when we first became Christians. Prophecy in the Old Testament, let us say, about the Messiah, 
and it's fulfilled in Jesus. Now you do Genesis 3.15, fulfilled uh, in Jesus. So this, this is pretty straightforward, but I'd still want to give some illustrations of it, especially to contrast it uh, with typological fulfillment, which we're going to see is this is the, uh, the second one to indicate indirect fulfillment of Old Testament typological prophecy. So we're going to get more into that. Um, but we find direct prophetic fulfillment uh, right off the bat in Matthew chapter 2 and verses 5 to 6. Matthew 2, 5 to 6. And there uh, it says this. This is in the context of Herod wanting to know uh, from uh, the people coming from the east, uh, the Magi, he wants to know uh, where the Messiah uh, was to be born. And um, gathering together the chief priests in, in, in Matthew 2, 4, and the scribes of the people began to inquire of them where the Messiah was to be born. Uh, and they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Um, now, you'll notice there's no fulfillment formula there. But obviously, fulfillment uh, is in mind because he asked the question um, where the Christ was to be born. Where are the prophecies? And adduced here is um, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So that's a, that's a very direct fulfillment of prophecy. Chapter 3, verse 3 is another one. You'll remember this. Uh, speaking of John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 3, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, again, there's no fulfillment formula here. You don't have to always have a fulfillment formula to have fulfillment of prophecy. The formula is paraphrased in this way, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. And then the prophecy is quoted. It's clearly seen as fulfilled in John. John the Baptist. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And this time, uh, we do have a fulfillment formula. When Jesus uh, leaves Nazareth in Matthew 4, 13, he comes and settles in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then it says, verse 14, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land, shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And you know what follows immediately that text? It's the Messianic child who is to be born with the government on his shoulders, etc. Um, so uh, uh, Jesus' geographical movements here are seen as a fulfillment of the geographical movements that are to happen when the Messiah comes, uh, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, and that he is seen as fulfilling that as he goes to different uh, places along the uh, lines delineated by uh, the Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 prophecy. Another one that's uh, uh, 
very um, uh, intriguing to me is uh, Luke chapter four. Remember, Jesus goes to the synagogue in Luke chapter four and verse uh, 16. In Nazareth, where it says where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, found the place where it was written. Uh, quote, and he quotes Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Don't you wish you'd been there at that time? Wow. Just to see the, the tenseness of uh, what they're going to uh, say to him and what he's going to say. And he began to say, as their eyes are fixed on him, they don't even ask him anything yet. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled and you're hearing. This is all we're speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which are falling from his lips. That prophecy from Isaiah 61 verses uh, 1 and 2 is one of the grand restoration prophecies from the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying, he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. His presence is beginning to fulfill that scripture. He is restoring Israel. He's beginning to restore Israel here. The promises of the restoration of Israel are, are beginning fulfillment in him. And we could ask, how are they beginning the fulfillment in, in him? Well, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's proclaiming release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, uh, setting free the downtrodden. But he's not just doing miracles. He's coming actually to uh, redeem Israel from her sin, thus restore her, as Isaiah 53 says just a few chapters earlier. Um, now, I was talking to someone uh, at the break, and, and maybe this is a good way to uh, begin to conclude because we still have three minutes. Um, and that is that Israel's captivity in Babylon was a faint foreshadowing of what true captivity is. True captivity was Jesus as true Israel. Uh, doing, he had done what they couldn't do and should have done in fulfilling Genesis 128. He performed all righteousness uh, as, as it said when he was baptized. Uh, so he has fulfilled that and at the cross, he experiences an exile that Israel never came near to experiencing. That is separation from God. Uh, because even in that physical exile, there, there were a remnant of believers, certainly, who were going to return. So he is experiencing separation from God as Israel. When he is resurrected, that resurrection is his resurrection as Israel to God. And if you and I are on his coattails, that is our restoration as well. The restoration prophecies of Israel begin fulfillment in Jesus, not in some future time. Uh, directly preceding a millennium and after and, and after a tribulation. No, it begins now. In fact, this is the great hermeneutical divide here among evangelicals. 
and it's around the world, not just in America. And that is, when do you think Israel's restoration began? Was it put off when the Jews rejected him and, uh, and went now we're in a long parenthesis church age and then when that age is over, that's when the restoration of Israel will begin at the end of the tribulation before the millennium? Or does it begin in Jesus' ministry? And here's a good example, and there are many of them, that Jesus quotes restoration prophecies beginning to be fulfilled in his ministry. So it's hard to get around that the restoration of Israel begins with Jesus in his first coming, even though the majority of Israel rejected him. So um, uh, I think that's a, you know, when I read, it's marvelous really to think about this because, you know, the whole Old Testament is opened up to us. When the Old Testament talks about the restoration of Israel, um, I used to think at one point, well, that, that's about, I think, Israelites. And they're going to be saved way, way in the future. It's not about me. No, it's about you and me. When it says, well, you know, we'll mount up with wings like eagles, like Isaiah 40. Those are, wing, those are resurrection wings that we're mounting up with. So that we'll run and not get weary. This is our ongoing restoration. We have begun to be restored, but we still have some baggage coming out of exile, and that's sanctification, as we slowly but surely throw that baggage off. So exile is not over, and it will not be over until our body is fully restored to God. So this, helped, this makes the whole Testament come alive for the believer, and I think we need to preach we need to teach that. The Old Testament is our book. Let's pray.